Hi, and welcome to the Golf Gals. The content of this podcast is provided for general entertainment purposes only and is not intended as, nor should it be considered a substitute for, professional golf advice. What? Are you sure? I thought we were pretty good. Mm, Actually, nope. We're all right, and sometimes we don't stink, but we don't even practice. Okay, but we're still the golf gals. We are about golf, girlfriends, and everything else. I'm Tina. And I'm Sharon. We're happy that you're listening today and hope you enjoyed the show. Let's Let's tee it up and hit it straight. Listeners and hi Sharon. Hey Tina. We're back. We're back and we're so excited to share with you our last episode of the season of season one. It was a doozy. We interviewed a really nice gentleman named Chuck Liebman. He was um, something, uh, he was somebody that I'm so glad we got to meet. Right. Um, my friend Kent Cooney from Woodstock Country Club suggested to us, you gals had better interview this man because he has great stories to tell and we have some really fun ones to share with you today. Um, and thank goodness we, we were able to get that done. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank you, Kent, for putting it together for us. Um, I don't think I'll ever forget him. No. I mean, he's somebody that once you meet and you listen to his stories, mm-hmm. um, you're so glad that you know you got to spend some time with him. Right. Um, A takeaway that I had from our interview with uh, Mr. Liebman was that uh, he founded a company in Cary, where I grew up, um, called Quillcraft, and he's going to share some stories with us um, that you'll enjoy. But as a kid, Coilcraft was often the sponsor to my softball team. (laughs) That was very cool. I know, and I've wonderful memories of um, Cary Youth Baseball, playing mm-hmm. softball in Cary, and how cool is it that mm-hmm. I met the man who sponsored my team? Yeah, it's very cool. Mm-hmm. What was um, your memory? I mean, I'm not going to forget um, his quote about golf, um, about how um, golf is like sex. You uh, don't have to be um, good at it to have fun. <laughs> so I think that's what I remember him that, saying, among other things. But that that he, he had us laughing quite a few times. He did. Well, we really want you to enjoy the show. And, well, this is our last episode for season one. And it's been a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. And we will see you soon um, for the next season. Enjoy. So, enjoy. Bye. A farmer is not a Green a greenskeeper. Right. Right. <laughs> God knows he wasn't a greenskeeper. Mm-hmm. But what was that like? Those early fifties, you think? Uh, middle uh, middle fifties. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, in the fifties. Yeah. Okay. And the people who played were the club was already uh, the club is uh, was a hundred years old, as you know. Right. Yeah. In 2016, right. right? But for the yeah, but for the first 50 years, it was really it was a cow pasture, and 
you were frequently tempted to putt with a five iron because <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have a, a very Mm -hmm. A very good schedule on mm -hmm. mowing the greens, and he didn't know how to run the mower. It was Did you... so. I was playing at at McHenry at that time, and then at Crystal Lake. Okay. Both of which were better. Oh yeah, they were golf courses, yeah. and this was a cow pasture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, did you get to play at WCC once the greens got better? I mean, well, I had some friends that from Woodstock that. We're members, and I I went over a couple times a year mm -hmm. as their guests. So I, I, yeah, I was familiar with the club. I had been playing, yeah, I started playing the golf course in the early 50s, yeah. Okay. So that, so did I. that, that was my boast. I wound up being the oldest member of the club, and <laughs> I had never join. joined. Yeah. <laughs> well. Uh, did you um did your wife play there with you as well? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. So did you play do you remember playing in the couples matches? Did they Oh sure. Yeah. Uh, that was the only thing that really was fun in the early days mm -hmm. of the course. It wasn't much of a course, but it was uh, a place where couples could get together. Mm -hmm. But the key question was at that time there were no restaurants in McHenry County. You had the choice. Either the Elks Club Okay. Yeah, I and, Woodstock, mm -hmm. or the Woodstock Country Club. Mm -hmm. So, so that was a side benefit members? that I got. At least we got restaurant wasn't very good, but you didn't have to do any cooking. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fish fries were good. Yeah. yeah. So it was a lot of social fun. But uh, it was a, a, f a family club in the sense mm -hmm. that we we had uh, a lot of. Uh, uh, Couples events. As a matter of fact, one of the I don't. This is before your time, I suppose. At one point, one of the biggest events that we had was the uh, the Lee, the <clears throat> the Lieben Open. Oh, okay. So we had eight couples. Eight, yeah, eight couples. And for a couple of years, that's, that that was the biggest event at the Woodstock Country Club. <laughs> so but, was that the same? <laughs> Um, eight couples every year that played every in it? year. Mm -hmm. uh, Who were they? Oh, uh, the Lutons and uh, yes. Chuck Jensen and uh, Wally and Ruth. Wally and Ruth. Uh, and we had two couples from Crystal Lake. Oh, hit, but it was a nifty group. Jack Conley. Yeah, it was that was one couple. And then yeah. there was a, another couple from the, the. Uh, yeah, the, two couples. From. Yeah. Did you enjoy playing golf with your wife? Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, one of the wonderful things about golf is that you know, a couples can really have a lot of fun. Oh yeah. So we used to invent our own rules and our own. We had our own event, and then we'd have a big dinner to mm -hmm. celebrate. Our, well, we'd have dinner after every yeah mm -hmm. Sunday afternoon. We took over the club. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot of fun. We do that as well. We don't really call them events or whatever, but we'll get our husbands together and we'll, you know, yeah, go and to that's the club a swell, play and it's just way to yeah. play golf and have some fun. It is. I didn't start golfing until, um, you know, I think I was thirty-eight, maybe thirty-nine. Um, and so I'm kind of new to it as well. Yeah. 
And so, actually, no, I was 48. I'm all nervous. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, that, I'm I was, like, I think I you're think a little was, older. I think I was like 48, maybe. <laughs> 40, 47, 48. But um, it has been, a, it's it's a lot of fun to play with your husband. Mm-hmm. You know, it, yeah. you kind of can talk about something and um, it gives you more to talk about besides the kids or work or, you know. Well, the cabber phrase, our, our slogan was, uh, golf is like sex. You don't have to be good at it to have fun. <laughs> That, I love that. That, that, yeah. was our, yeah. that was our rallying cry. Uh, and so and it's true. It's true. Yeah. That's, that's the yeah. neat part of it. Did your wife ever get mad at you when you were golfing? Was she competitive? No. or? She was, oh yeah, she was. But did she, she would she get mad at you if you had a bad shot or? No, just normal matrimonial yeah. nonsense. Yeah. You know, Tina's but, asking I'm asking because I give my husband a lot of grief. Oh, you do? Yes, I do. <laughs> No, quite Mary, a bit. No, well, I was married. Realized after we got married that if she, if we were going to have a a useful marriage, she was going to have to learn to play golf. She didn't, yeah. yep. and she had the the skill of somebody with like that had a club foot, although she didn't have a club foot, <laughs> but. She knew that if this marriage was going to work, we we're, we're going to have to. <laughs> yeah. She was going to have to learn something about, it. and it turned out that she became a golf nut yeah. and a pretty good yeah. golfer. That sounds like me because that I like, started yeah. golfing. She could hit a two iron almost a hundred and eighty a hundred and eighty yards. Wow. She was a. She discovered that the irons were more useful than woods, but. Yeah. Uh, did she play at the in the ladies league then? Was she a member of the ladies league at Woodstock? Oh sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, at that time, there was a terrific ladies group mm-hmm. as a result of this couples mm-hmm. tradition, and those gals used to put on events of their own that were really fun. Well, we still do that. I know that they used to call it the whoop de doo back then. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. 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 Well, um, I don't know. At some point, we were just talking the other day that it's. I don't know when they changed the name to the main event, but we were discussing maybe changing Going it back. back to call it the Whoop de Doo because we thought it sounded mm-hmm. pretty pretty cool. I never know where that came from. Yeah. But, but they had a lot of fun mm-hmm. with that, and their big party of the year was one of the best events at the yeah. uh, Were you invited to their party? No. Afterwards, okay. No. We don't invite because our we don't husbands. invite our husbands no. either. Oh no, this was ladies only. Oh, yeah, okay. But for like the men's events, the ladies come for dinner, you know, that last night. You know. Yeah. We're more inclusive. <laughs> one of the ladies came up with I think one of the most fascinating descriptions of her experience at the Woodstock Country Club. <laughs> it was one of Mary's favorite stories. The girl, she, they had gotten to know each other, and at one point they were—I guess they were at lunch or something. So, so Mary said, "Well, what have you learned after a year or two at the Woodstock Country Club?" She says, "I've learned two things." She says, "I've learned how to drink in the middle of the day and say shit." (laughs) 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 That's what she learned at the Woodstock Country Club. Yeah, that's great. We do both of those. Uh-huh. Both of yeah. Yes. Well. We, it's still happening. Um, <laughs> that's, that's really funny. Uh, we, we, obviously, you're a great storyteller, and we love telling stories. Um, 
I have been known to ask an odd question about an elephant, which happens to be my favorite mascot. And we, we've we heard that you have a story to tell about an elephant at WCC. <laughs> my elephant story, huh? Well... <clears throat> Chuck, as you're telling this story, I want you to make sure and explain where the doorways were and what was in what part of the facility and so forth, so that it it is a piece of history that's gone. So I've confused that a couple of times. Well, the point of it was this. I'll, I'll, I'll include that part. In those days at Coilcraft, we used to work right up to New Year's Eve. I don't know why we did it, because it was a mess. It was a mess because by noon everybody was crocked, so nobody nobody was making a coil. <laughs> so I was playing my role as being a host, and around the middle of the day, New Year's Eve, I had had more to drink than I needed, but I decided that I would get out of the way and they could continue with their craziness. Theoretically, they were working, but that, that was a minor part of it. So where am I going to go? This is like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, too early to go home. So I figured, well, I'll go to the club and have an early nightcap. At that time, and what he's referring to, the, the entrance that we used to use was the one in in the front of the building. It was configured a little bit differently, but... Uh, so I parked my car and then walked around and I was going into the doorway. So the bar is downstairs about where the yeah, pro there was shop a, is? Now. There was a bar downstairs, right. yeah, where the pro shop is. Okay. So I walk in the door and I'm confronted by the back end of an elephant. So I said, uh, how the hell much did you have to drink this morning? <laughs> but I was comforted by the fact that it was, the elephant wasn't pink. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was a real live elephant. But what the hell is, what's an elephant doing at the Woodstock Country Club on New Year's Eve? Well, it turned out that Ken Luton and the Luton Paint Company and one of his better products was a, a coating that he called Tuffy. So he bought an elephant to use as a promotional gimmick for going to conventions and otherwise publicizing Tough Coat. <clears throat> So there I am, I walk in, and I'm, I can't actually get in the door because the, the back end of the elephant is right up against the door, and I'm, I'm trying to get around the elephant without causing any disturbance with him. So it's a I, real live elephant. Yeah. This is a real live elephant. Oh <laughs> How did it fit in the door? It was a mini elephant. I mean, it was. Was it a baby a, elephant? Maybe. He bought it as a baby elephant. He hadn't anticipated that it eventually got to be so big that he couldn't manage it. The point was that Ken was having his company Christmas party, and he thought it would be fun to bring Tuffy. Uh, 
Now, did the wow. stairs exist to so go every stairs, or was the everything stairway was on the lower same, level? Same way, yeah. Okay. So, there I am confronting the back end of an elephant, and having had too much to drink, so I'm off to a bad start. <laughs> but it really that's, was an elephant. So that. That's a great story. I'm so but glad. I, but I got to add, put an add adder to it. Uh, Ken Luton was a very unusual guy. Uh, I don't know whether you did you ever meet him. He's no. a marvelous golfer. We played an awful lot of golf together. My boast is that a lot of people may have friends that have all kinds of peculiar apparatus around them. Maybe you knew somebody who had an elephant. That would be possible. Maybe you knew somebody who had a Rolls Royce. That was possible. But my standing bet was you didn't have a friend who had both a Rolls Royce <laughs> and an elephant. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I had a little difficulty getting my bearings while I'm adjusting to the back end of this elephant. So that's the elephant story yeah. at Woodstock yeah. CC. I love it. Um, that's going to come full circle. I can't wait. I got a lot of grief. I asked a stupid elephant question one time, and uh, and I got a lot of grief for it. And Who were so, we interviewing? Uh, we were interviewing our bartender Jonah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm not I'm not a I, this is not I don't do this for a living. I'm hardly good at interviewing people. So <laughs> I got online and started reading up. Like, you know, what what do you what kind of questions do you ask when you interview someone? And I, it said you should ask an odd question or something that, you know, they're not going to expect. So I proposed an elephant question to our bartender, and everybody just thought it was crazy. They wanted me to take it out of the podcast. That's stupid. <laughs> Nobody's in. And it was it was good to hear that there was an, an actual elephant so in the my club. boast for them, yes. from that time on was that uh, how many people belong to a country club where they stagger into the bar and confront the back end <laughs> of, a, of an elephant, a real live Years, elephant. Yeah. That is a great now, story. Now, a side story to that same elephant. My my in high school, my buddy Billy Burke got hired by Ken Luton to clean up after the elephant in his So he kept the elephant pen. here. He kept the elephant here in Woodstock. He, in his pen yeah, in his shop. He yes. had a he had a little barn behind his house in, in yeah. Woodstock. So we would go over there. I'd go with Billy and uh, on Sundays and we'd shovel elephant shit out of there oh. and um, dispose of it and then uh, feed the feed Tuffy well, give him water and whatnot and so on so I had an intimate relationship with Tuffy do you know he what did. happened to it he got eventually sold, I think right yeah when it got so big he had bought a a, a, a wagon a panel truck <laughs> they actually cut the top of the roof off as the elephant grew and they put a new roof on it but it got out of hand and eventually he found somebody who had a some kind of a wild animal farm in Wisconsin, so he shoved it off. You don't happen to have any pictures of this elephant, do you? I do not. They must exist. I got a picture of that elephant in my yeah. mind that I'll never forget. <laughs> yeah, you were back well, you were no part of that elephant. How, yeah. many, how many people have gone to their country club for a, a uh, moment yeah. of relaxation and confronted an elephant? That's a, that's a great story that is to a remember. Um, I think it was one of the unique characteristics of what it had a lot a lot of flavor to it. Eh? Yeah. Um, what other stories about WCC do you remember that are interesting and tell tell them about your Saturday and your Sunday foursomes. 
you know, who was in it and... and what, the, the Liebman Open? No, the, the, your regular foursomes. You had a blue-collar foursome and a white-collar foursome. And a, oh, that one. <laughs> I mean, because that's an interesting, useful piece of history, I think. The variety of people that I met over the years at Woodstock adds flavor to my memory, my pleasant memories of Woodstock Country Club. A Sunday morning, my standing ball was the the personnel manager at Autolite, uh, Wally Christensen, and uh, an odd fill-in of one sort or another from time to time. And they were serious golfers. I think what he's referring to. And I had another group that I used to meet on Sunday afternoon, which included the num the second largest stockholder of Payne, Weber, Jackson, and Curtis, the brokerage firm in Chicago. Dick Babcock, who was the world's authority on land use law, and who the uh, and the fourth was a fill in from time to time. People's gas or something. Oh, uh, that's uh, the, the chairman of uh, of uh, People's Gas. Yeah, oh. that was. And were they all members of the club, or well, did you bring them? Yeah. No, they were members. So what what he's referring to, this contrast of playing with local yeah. guys right. in the morning and then in the yeah. afternoon. Now these other guys, they didn't, they didn't want to play with anybody at Woodstock. They they wanted to play by themselves because they were in a a little bit of a a different group. That, right. Than the personnel right. manager at yeah. but I I used to get a laugh out of the fact that the chairman of People's Gas and and the second largest stockholder at Payne Weber. Uh, we had a couple of notables in our history. One story, which is a little goofy. We had noticed a couple that came every. Uh, a Saturday afternoon, and it coincided with, I don't know, I played a lot of golf, so I was there a lot. Do you think you played seven days a week? No. No? No. No, he's working. <laughs> oh, yeah. At that time, uh, almost all the country clubs in the, in the entire area, I think in the entire country at that point, had uh, in varying degrees what they thought was exclusivity, and one of the things you do to to establish your own social distinction was that you would discriminate against, uh, discriminate against other people, mm -hmm. mainly Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, all clubs mm -hmm. discriminated against Jews. So there was a guy on the on the North Shore, a very successful broker, who was Jewish, and he was a golf nut, and he didn't like playing daily fee golf courses, so he discovered that at Woodstock, although it technically had the same pretension of ex Excluding. some exclusivity, mm -hmm. but Woodstock was never a club that 
could maintain a very high level of exclusivity. Mm -hmm. So this guy discovered that he could join Woodstock Country Club and he didn't have to go to daily fee golf right. courses. Well, it turned out, as we got to know them in subsequent Saturday afternoons, that that's why he was a member at Woodstock. But his wife is the story. As we got to know them, the climax of our acquaintanceship came when I remember uh, we had dinner. Uh, we had dinner or something. In any case, we invited them here, and we learned a very interesting story. His wife, it turned out, well, a preface to the story is an interesting part alone, but the capper I'll get to in a moment. She grew up on the south side of Chicago, and she used to commute to her job on the train. And one morning, she was late to the extent that the train had come and actually started out of the South Shore Station and she ran alongside of the train and hopped on the train to get into town. When she hopped on the train, a guy was at the doorway of the train. And he said, where do you run? She said, what do you mean, where do I run? That's a rather an odd mm -hmm. question for somebody to ask. Where do you? Guy says, you're obviously a runner. She says, I, yeah, I run to catch trains. That's yeah. the only running I ever did. He was a high school coach in charge of athletics, which included the runners. He was sitting inside the train when she was running along the train. And when she hopped on, that's when he went to the doorway and said, where do you run? And she's saying, what do you mean, where the hell do I run? He said, you run in a unique way. You are a runner. <laughs> it's news to me, she said. The climax of that story, which they told, sitting in this, in this room, he then took her under his supervision and started training her, working with her, and she wound up winning a gold medal at the Olympics oh in Germany wow. at, at the time, at the peak of Hitler's career, and he, was try he made a big deal of the 1936 Olympics and she was a gold medal winner. Wow, do you remember her Not name? A, I, We've got to know her name. I can't remember her name. We'll have to look that up. We have to look that up. It's in the history okay. that uh, you have of the, yeah. of the club. Of the club. Really? I, okay. I, I, her name, I think, is in, I'm almost certain she's in there. Wow. Yeah. They turned out to be a charming couple, and the capper to the story was not only did she win a gold medal, but she was also Jewish, 
and that didn't go very no. well in the Hitler Olympics of right. 1936, right. Right. but she was actually one of the more notable members of the club. Well, we had all kinds of oddball yeah. situations of that sort. Yeah. That's, that's a neat story. The best of recollections, the most, the most sentimental recollections I have of notables at the Woodstock Country Club involve the pro that was the pro when I when I be, when I became a member what's his name uh, Hutchinson uh, um, Ed Edgar Edgar Hutchinson was the son of Jock Hutchinson who won the British Open in 1921 oh, yeah. Wow now, Edgar was scheduled as the son of Jock Hutchison, who eventually wound up living in Evanston and was the pro at the Glenview Club. But Edgar was uh, uh, had apoplexy, and when he was a teenager, he was winning a junior a a a a, a big junior tournament and was winning and in the final day he had an apoplectic fit and that was the end of his career as a competitive golfer oh, wow. so he we got him as a as a pro because uh, a pro with apoplexy at that time was was not uh, uh, desirable very desirable yeah so he stayed at the club for a very long time so while he was the pro at the club, his father, who, when I met him, would come out to Woodstock a couple times a year to play with Edgar. And, and he's the British pro. Well, he's British the one Open. that won British the British Open, Open in okay. 1921. So Edgar used to invite me, and I played, I, I think, two or three years. I played one round of golf for those three years with the former... Wow. Winner of the British Open. Were you nervous? Yes. <laughs> it turned out it was um, the most delightful. Uh, I remember yeah. my rounds, my two or three rounds with Jock Hutchison mm -hmm. as some of the most pleasant memories I have of ever playing golf. Mm -hmm. It turned out his story was utterly fascinating, and I'll bore you with that if you if you care to hear it. But that, I'm not bored. I'm not bored the, at all. But the important thing for me, and the memory that sticks in my mind, my a 98 year old yeah. brain here, and I, one of my most vivid memories is that opportunity that I would have a couple times yeah. a year for two or three years. Jock at that time I think was in his late 70s but was still playing remarkable golf. He couldn't hit the ball very far, mm -hmm. but he was immensely knowledgeable of the game like nobody I ever met before or since. He curved the ball. He played the, the Woodstock golf course beautifully. For example, I remember specifically hit, uh, on the third tee mm -hmm. with the Autobahns on the left, I came to observe that the way he played that hole, 
was that he played it with a slice. He didn't normally, mm-hmm. his normal shot was, was a draw, was a hook. Mm-hmm. So I said to him, I said, how come... Whenever you get to the third tee at Woodstock, it winds up there sliced a ball. He says, it doesn't just happen. He says, let me explain something to you. This is what the vivid memory that I have. He says, if you aim down the middle of the fairway, your margin of error is only half a fairway to the right and half a fairway to the left. If you know enough about the game and you can dependably slice the ball. And if you aim for the out-of-bounds on the left, your margin for error is the whole fairway. Mm-hmm. And that's how he... Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> practically yeah. every hole has, a, has, a, yeah. has a, an anecdote that I, I savor mm-hmm. in that how he would explain how he played the game of golf. Mm-hmm. He never was long. He played when he won the British Open. Nobody hit the ball very far. They were still playing with a with a with a gutty ball, and nobody could hit very far. But he was a master of controlling the ball. And I never met anybody before or after mm-hmm. that. The term we use as golf nuts is he worked the ball, mm-hmm. and it was fun. He had a scheme for every hole. Yeah, and, and that third hole is my example. So that was a, a notable event for a number of years. Do you watch golf today? Do you watch current golf of the My interest today? has been tapering off yeah. for the last 25 yeah. years. So they're playing the President's um, Cup now. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's on tonight. Yeah. Tonight? Yeah. Yeah. Tiger Woods is playing with Justin Thomas. I think that's the first round. Yeah. But that was an experience that I, as I say, a unique golf experience. Yeah. And to have experienced this at an insignificant club like the Woodstock Country right. Club. Yeah. Is, uh, what did make... he think of the, the course at the time? Did he think it was a great course? No. He thought it was cute. <laughs> <laughs> he, he laughed at the golf course. He didn't yeah. think much of it. Uh, there was one, a couple of memories that he had, though, that, uh, uh, observations. It's, you ask an interesting question. The seventh hole was one that fascinated him. He he thought we never played the seventh hole without his commenting on uh, what memories this. He he was born and raised in uh, St. Andrews. Wow. Uh, but he says this hole reminds me of my hometown and my playing as a kid. At that time, we've many over the years we've softened it. But at 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 the time that I played with him, the the seventh hole was, and I later came when I learned, wound up having a chance to play quite a bit of golf in Scotland. I realized what he was talking about much later. But that hole was a classic of of Scottish golf. It was tiered. Had the he- the severe bunkers on the right and the left. The green was mowed all the way to the bunkers, so mm-hmm. you could actually mm-hmm. be on the green, and if you if the, if the pin was in an inopportune way, you could actually put the ball into a six foot deep bunker. Mm-hmm. The bunkers gradually were <laughs> filled in, but but every hole was a 
was a reminiscence for him, and that was an unbelievable experience, as I say. Yeah, uh, that's a compliment to Woodstock. (laughs) To the history of Woodstock. He knew the the man that designed the Woodstock golf golf course. Bendelow. Thomas Bendelow. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he was a very colorful person, and the way he played golf was fascinating. So it was Jock and his son, Jock Jr., and Edgar and myself. Mm-hmm. That was a, that was our four ball yeah. for, for that couple of years. And how long did you play that? Did you get to play that? I, th- I think it was three years. Wow. And then... The... Would you play, when you played Woodstock, do you have like a favorite hole that you always enjoyed playing? Well, I got two aces on eight, so I, I guess I had it. <laughs> I guess that, that... That's great. Well, I have to ask, did you ever put it in the water on eight? <laughs> sure. You did? Okay. As a matter of fact, that's what another vivid memory I had. I remember... <laughs> Can you tell us about one it? One of the club championships. At that time, I was... I would vacillate. Occasionally, I'd get in a championship group, but mostly I played in Class A. So we were playing the 71st hole of the tournament, the fourth day. Mm-hmm. Four days? No, three. We, was three, we okay. played three rounds. Okay. I was leading by three shots, I think, at the time. And one of my competitors <coughs> in that group was a Korean, the most competitive player I ever met. So to answer your question, yes, I'm on the 71st hole, or, or the, 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 the the next to the last hole of the of the yeah. last round. I don't know. We, we, I don't know. We, we, I think we played four rounds. I'm I, I'm not sure. They do three now, right? We, we used two, to play the, the club championship was characteristically uh, played over the Labor Day weekend. So we used to play two rounds in. August and then and we play thirty six holes Saturday and Sunday, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. I, I I'm leading by three shots, and I uh. hit the ball in the water on eight, and these vultures, including that Korean, converged. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I remember a wonderful experience of my having to run the the risk of blowing the tournament mm-hmm. on the next to the last hole. But I pulled it off. You did it, so you won that year. Yeah, I won it. I won the class A that year. I, I won it. What number, year was that? Number. Do you know? Nah, no, I have no idea. Did I got you? a good memory, but that yeah? would be. That Who's would be. the Korean? The uh, the pediatrician in Woodstock. Doc Han. Oh, he was my son's. Uh, he was my son's pediatrician. He was a he marvelous reti- guy he to play with. But I really couldn't understand him. Like he would tell a story. <laughs> you know, he would just tell the story. He would try to tell me what was going on with my youngest son, Matthew, and I would take my older son with me because I could not figure out what his story would be about. <laughs> I'd be like, he'd talk about a bus, and I just don't know where we're going with this. But um, but he retired uh, that year. So, yeah, that's awesome. Was played, it John? Was his first name John? Yeah, John. Yeah. yeah. I played a lot of golf with him, and there's nobody yeah. I enjoyed beating he more was, than him. He was. I, he doesn't come across as competitive. He was so nice and kind. was a guy nice from, from the other part of the world yeah. who had a sense of the of the golf, the spirit of golf. Yeah. Like nobody I know. Yeah. His competitive attitude was wonderful. Yeah. Oh, it was. 
It was. I yeah. love the I, game. Honestly, I, I enjoyed beating him more than anyone else really? I ever played he against. He was a yeah. wonderful guy. Yeah. Boy, did he jump all over that situation, though. Oh, yeah. He, did. Oh, yeah. he, bog he bogeyed the 18th hole. So yeah. Uh, so what so did you I, do I when, he bogeyed, the... when he bogeyed? What did you do? Nothing? You just... I had a drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You should ask him about your drink. My drink, I should. Do you know what a transfusion is? The drink? Yeah. No. You, you don't know? No. Never heard of it? No. Okay. Well, I um, had heard, I listened to a podcast, and there's a drink that a lot of golf courses have, and it's called the transfusion. And it's basically a, a Moscow mule, but it's with grape juice. And so um, no one really has ever heard about it. Nope. So, but it's it's like a staple at every golf course. <laughs> so Jonah, this, Jonah makes it now. Yeah. So I had our, our bartender uh, make it for us. But I, I just asked. You know, people periodically, hey, you know what that is. You do. But I haven't met anybody at WCC yet that really knows <laughs> no, what it is. The Tina drink is not on yeah. a, uh, <laughs> at the same level as the John Daly. No, yeah. it's not. But at the transfusion, it's it's probably older than the John Daly. All right, you want another good story? Yes, I do. Um, Arnie Palmer at the bar. Oh, that wasn't at Woodstock. I know, but yeah. it's a good story. I, uh, I was in Los Angeles... Uh, it reminds me of the, the preface to this story. An earlier round, I had played it uh, with a group, and we're, we teed off and we're introducing ourselves to each other. And somebody said, uh, "You out here uh, on vacation?" I said, "No, I'm working." And but the <laughs> what, what's the story we're getting out here? Where, where you got? Uh, Roughed up at the bar by Arnie, and no, then you was the... a, this was I had two experiences with 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 Arnie, <laughs> pretty really? mis, miscellaneous, but they're from. Uh, I, so for the weekend, I went down to uh, Palm Springs. At that time, American Airlines had a club in Palm Springs, and it was crowded, very crowded. I had played around, and. There were two golf courses. There was the private course and the public course. I had played the, the, the hotel course, the public course. So I had played my round. I had taken a shower, and I was at the bar. And the bar was jam-packed. And we're all sitting there uh, with shoulder to shoulder. And I had lifted my drink, and all of a sudden somebody comes along, and a person had left the seat next to me, and somebody wedged his way into that chair and spilled my drink all down my Front. chest. Yeah. And I looked over, and I immediately recognized him. I was a little bit surprised. I didn't realize he had huge shoulders. Yeah. He wasn't very big, yeah. but he had huge shoulders. Well, he was embarrassed, so he bought me another drink. But it turned out that while I was playing the public course, there was a big crowd over on the private course with cameras and a, and, a, and a crowd. Well, I later discovered that Arnold was putting on a demonstration for aluminum shafts, which were a big fad for, mm -hmm. I think, one season. Mm -hmm. And this explains why. 
<laughs> so he bought me a drink, and naturally we started. He was alone, so we were chatting. So I said, uh, <coughs> what do you think of these <coughs> aluminum shafts that you just put on, for which you just put on this demonstration at, at the other course? So Arnold, very carefully, he looks one way and looks the other to see whether he has any business danger to his answer, which was, they're horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> the way he handled this was very interesting. He wanted to make sure that he yeah. wasn't going to offend anybody. That, that was my experience with Arnold. When was that, early 60s? Yeah, somewhere in the 60s, right? When was the aluminum shaft? I don't know. Oh, that was before your time, yeah. yeah. It turned out it wasn't any good at all. Yeah. But the way, the way he expressed himself was very interesting. So what, what you um, ran coal craft, that was your business? Yeah, so I did. What did, what did you go to, where did you go to school, and what did you, what did you practice? I mean, what did you study, and... and what was your major? I was an English literature major at Northwestern. Excellent. I majored in English because I didn't know what else to major in. <laughs> uh, then by a series of accidents, I got involved in the electronics industry, mm -hmm. and it turned out to be a bonanza. Yeah. I, I turned out that I, I had no idea that I had any business ability. As a matter of fact, I, I didn't want to go into business. I wanted to be a social worker. Okay. <laughs> well, you were a people person, mm -hmm. and you Apparently. cared about people. Um, I have a story when my, my oldest son is um, 30 now, and he's, um, he's an engineer. He's an electrical engineer, and he works for Sure Microphone. And so when he was a junior in high school, he started talking about um, becoming going into computers and computer engineering, and I stupidly but honestly looked at him and said hey do you think this computer thing is going to last <laughs> <laughs> so much so, for your yes i mean i was serious i was like really yeah. i mean i i thought i really wanted him to maybe do become a lawyer so, i i don't know <laughs> and now thank goodness goodness he did it because i don't like you're lawyers. famous you're famous for yes yourself. he talks about it all the time he says he'll just lay in bed sometimes and then he'll laugh out loud because he can't believe mom said that but um <laughs> Anyway, uh, like are you that. amazed at how far computers has come? It was absolutely astounding, yeah. You want to hear Steve Jobs? Yeah, I absolutely do. Mm -hmm. But I I mean, before we, there were computers, this was a question we had. What did you do to, I mean, a lot of kids can't fathom that they couldn't go to the Google to find their answer. So what what did you used to have to do if you had to, to find a problem? Yeah. Well, we used slide rules. That's a marvelous gadget. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of guessing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really was a, an amazing experience to look back over in 70 years in, in the industry. The crudeness that we started with is unbelievable mm -hmm. when I think back at it. Mm -hmm. uh, terrible conditions, solder fumes all over the place. <laughs> Charlie, I think the best story you've ever told me was the Motorola engineer that challenged you to that miniaturization 
process? Well, that's, we were already a, a moderately successful company, but the thing that made us into an international company is what he's referring to. Motorola was one of our early customers. They weren't much of a company when we started with them in 1950. You know, I use dates like that. that <laughs> jolting. But we, and for many years they were our largest customer, and we fought like like families fight. We we bitched and complained to each other constantly, but they were our largest customer. I got a phone call from an engineer that I had never met. I heard his name. He said, I'd like to come to Cary and talk to you. Well, obviously, our somebody from our largest customers was most welcome. So he came out and said, We've got a, a, a huge problem. We see the future of communications as being dependent on what is now developing as a revolution in componentry and circuitry in general. And we need some coils that are, and he held his hand up, he says they're about this big and they don't have leads on them. His name was Rudy Pohanka. I said, Rudy, what the hell are you talking about? I never heard of such a thing. He says, that's why I'm here. He says, we have searched the world. We have decided that this is extremely important to Motorola. And we can't find anything that's close to what we want. I said, well... I'm glad you didn't travel very far because it's a useless trip that you made. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I don't understand it. He says, will you try? Well, you don't say to your best customer, no, I won't, I won't try. So I said I'd try, and at the time I felt that this is a waste of time. So he left. Every Friday from then on, he would call and say, have you given any thought to our conversation? I said, yes, I have. He says, have you tried? I said, yes, we have. Now, I think it was probably f four or five weeks that this routine continued, and each time I would say, yeah, I, I've been thinking about it, and I, I can't figure out what the hell it is that you're I said, in the first place, I don't understand what you, why you're trying to do this. In the second place, we didn't, I don't know how to do it. But we, play, we played around. We, we did. I did seriously fiddle with this thing and tried to figure out what the hell he was talking about. I had no idea what would eventually happen. But after about six or six or seven weeks or so, I got my call. Rudy says, do you have an idea? I said, Rudy, I got some good news and some bad news. I said, we have figured out a way to make 
this thing that you're to design this thing that you're talking about. I said, that's the good news. He said, what's the bad news? I said, we don't have the dimmest idea how we could possibly make this in production. We can't figure out how you could make it. That's the preliminary to the discussion. The upshot of this is that we did figure it out. We wound up revolutionizing, being a contributor to the revolution that Motorola had triggered. But he, I'll interrupt this story to, to point out why he had come to carry. He says, we have seven or eight good coil suppliers. I said, we had a big meeting last week and we went down the list We're, after having searched the world and we'd not found anything. At that time, the Japanese were already becoming, becoming a factor. He said, we, we went down the list and crossed them all off, including Coilcraft. So the question was, well, what do we do now? Well, let's go back through the list. And he said, we went back through the list and your name was the last name that we crossed off the list. He says, that's why I visit, I, uh, that's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> they started Imagine. at the bottom. And the upshot of this was that this became a bonanza worldwide mm -hmm. and made Coilcraft into a worldwide component right. manufacturer. Yeah. So while in you were, without your knowing it, yeah. Yeah. right there next to you in Kerry, right we were the pioneer of the surface mount miniature inductor which wound up being a key not only to two-way communications but ultimately played a, a very very important role in the cell phone okay the cell phone could not possibly have been reduced to the size it was without mm -hmm. this problem being solved is that still being used in cell phones now this is still being used in, and it's still a staple of our business it's a major element of our yeah. success it's something to be really be proud of too I at mean, the that's peak amazing the peak production of that particular kind of a coil was in 2015 2014 2015 we made that year the, the number sticks in my mind among my memories we made six billion, wow. six billion of these little dinky things that Rudy was indicating. And what <laughs> year was that? That was in the late 70s, yeah. the middle so, 70s. So he was telling you that they were going to have a, with the cell phones? I mean, were you seeing that far down no. the road? You didn't no. That's crazy. I yeah. At that time, the cell phone was not... Was I was nine. Not <laughs> the... You know, to me, the upshot of that is that <clears throat> what we enjoy today is a byproduct of what they created in Kerry. Right. Charlie's humble. He says, yeah. Yeah. nah, it would have happened anyway. But it didn't happen anyway. It happened in Kerry. Right. And right. you did it. We did it. Uh, we had to develop, uh, when, when uh, in subsequent Friday calls from Rudy, I had to give him a report of what... <laughs> turned out we not only had to design the coil, but we had to invent some new machinery that did not exist, which we eventually, and to this day, we make it ourselves. We, we, How exciting was that? Unbelievably, yeah. unbelievably. It was not only 
very profitable, but the excitement of a little yeah. tiny company in Cary, right. Illinois, yeah. playing a world world a role in worldwide uh, communication. Yeah. Communications was fascinating, and at that time Motorola was the leader in two-way communications. So. Right. All right, girls. It's close to dinner time. Any All last right. questions? Uh, let's ask. Let's let's hear the Steve Jobs story, and then that could be our last one. The what? Steve Jobs. Your weekend was Steve Jobs. <laughs> In nineteen eighty four, I got a funny letter. Well, the preface to it was, we. When the Japanese were taking over the TV industry, which is which was what where we made our beginnings and our first success, when they started taking over the industry, we became interested in what else could we do, since ninety some percent of our business was in television, and we were right, the television was going to disappear from mm -hmm. the U.S. At that time, we were not. Uh, anywhere near being a world producer of anything. So one of the things we did was we pursued Apple. We knew that they were doing some interesting work, but it was all rumor. We didn't know what the hell they were doing. And we then uh, I'm sorry. went through a, an extended period of time making all kinds of samples of things that we didn't understand what the hell they were trying to do. They never—they were very secretive. They never told us anything. So I got a letter inviting me to Cupertino for, for three days. When I got there, I discovered there were eight or nine of the suppliers that had been working on a project. None of us knew what it was. Until we got to Cupertino for this weekend. So Steve was there. The first night he had his girlfriend, at the time a, a famous singer. My kids know who the singer was, but I don't remember what her name was. So for three days we spent at, well, the funny part of this is I, this, the letter said, you are invited and I'm specifically inviting you and none of your associates or anybody in your company. I was going to ask, did you go alone or did you go with a group? I went alone. alone. So I walk up to the desk and I clerk said, do you have a reservation? I said, I, I don't know. Uh, and I'm stammering and the guy says, are you in the Apple group? And I said, yeah. At which point he called a bellman, grabbed my bag, and we started up, stopped at a private bar on the, the floor that my room was on, and here was this gorgeous room with a huge bunch of flowers on the table and a big hunk of cheese and a place setting and a bottle of wine. He really put on a show for the eight or nine of us that had participated in this mysterious project. So the second day he took us out to the plant that he had was still building 
to make this whatever it was. We didn't know what it was. We didn't, we were beginning to sense it was something involved with a tabletop computer. And the subsequently we learned out of every night at dinner he would lecture us. And here he is, a kid that impressed mm -hmm. me as nothing more than a, than a juvenile delinquent, yeah. a nut. And he's telling us old-timers how he's going to revolutionize the industry. The third day, just to cut the story short, we wake up and we had a big, every morning we had a big breakfast. Both Steves were there. And we were taken into a private dining room and there were, there were sheets in big lumps on tables. That looked, looked a little spooky. We didn't know what that was. So after breakfast, we went into this room with the sheets over the, the whatever. And at a given signal, very dramatic, typical of a, mm -hmm. the nut that he was. Yeah. There's a signal, and they, the sheets were yanked off, mm -hmm. and there were the, the Mac. The Mac. We didn't know what it was. <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> Here's a little thing this big. Yeah. He then proceeded to tell us what it was that we had been working on mm -hmm. for I don't know how many months without knowing what it was. Yeah. Well, the upside of that was he sent us each out of the first production, and that my my. my uh, uh, gift was a, the, the, the piece itself and the back uh, uh, there's an engraved uh, nameplate oh, on the back wow. of it he sent us all uh, copies of, of the machine and the, yeah. but that was the three craziest days of my life where we're the, the whole thing was yeah. so dramatic. He was building it up to the... He to built it up. Boy, up, did, he, did he milk the situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That is. Do you still have it? It's, yeah, it's sitting on, it's on Paul's desk. Is it? <laughs> still works. Wow. <laughs> That's funny. Of course it does. Well, thank you so much for letting us come to your home and, and well, talk to you. It's been... Very fascinating, oh, well, and I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed I, I could just so sit much. here for like I know another <laughs> two, <laughs> three hours. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we're not gonna forgive Kim no. for, for cutting it well, short, but his belly is. You are free to come back. Yeah, well, yeah. So we would love to. Yeah. But the fun thing is, little old Carrie. Yeah, yeah. Produced something that that made a contribution yeah. to the to the to the world. Uh, I remember one meeting at. the and Terry, this one, when the cell phone was being talked about a great deal, but it was in, it was not in existence yet. There was uh, two engineers from Motorola, one for, and an engineer from Bell Labs at IT and AT and T, and we had some conversations in Kerry, which actually were a preview of some of the exciting. Developments that we later were 
uh, lucky enough to participate in. I know. So I'm here we are now. We have a little old company centered yeah. in the Cary. Yeah. We don't do any manufacturing in Cary. We, we couldn't possibly have stayed in Cary with our manufacturing because mm -hmm. we now have about 10,000 employees, most of whom are in Asia. Mm -hmm. What have, do you do with that building in Cary now? Hmm? What do you do with the building in Cary now? That's all engineering and management and sales okay. and other fooling around. <laughs> machinery building. We built, right. still build all our own machinery. Mm -hmm. We have eight, eight plants in, in Asia. Mm -hmm. Singapore, China, Malaysia, Vietnam. Well, we're definitely going to have to come back sometime to hear some more well, stories. Or maybe you, could, maybe you could come to do um, Get Out. Maybe you could come have dinner with us at the club sometime. Is that a possibility? I don't get out very much. No? So. Okay. Well, maybe we could bring you dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank that you so That's much. what we do. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a fun, fun experience. <laughs> yeah.